Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And um, yesterday we had a fascinating podcast on, well, I found it fascinating, on uh, the history of uh, kind of the the known world uh, between around uh, 550, 600 before Christ and up to uh, right, you know, up till 0 BC, although there isn't a 0. It goes from minus 1 to plus 1. Um, and so now we're going to zoom in and look specifically at the Jewish people because all this stuff was going on in the world. Uh, but then there was something very different happening in... Um, in uh, I'm just going to call it Israel. Um, nowadays we tend to refer to that area as Palestine. But as we're going to find out, the word Palestine was actually invented uh, at the end. We'll, we'll see that at the end of this by Romans who uh, wanted to erase uh, and eradicate the Jewish people and uh, their homeland. So anyways, we'll, we'll refer to that that stretch of land as Israel. And um, there's no way I'm going to keep everybody happy with my vocabulary. So that's what I that's what I find the most um, most correct, historically speaking. Um and uh, what was happening in, in uh, Israel was very different than what was happening in the rest of the world. And, uh, of course, it's very significant for understanding the Bible and even understanding Western culture. So the Israelites came back uh, from Babylon. A uh, very remarkable thing that they were captured, deported, and then they were allowed to go back. Um, but it's historically attested. There's no, there's no real debate that that happened. And they started coming back between 538 and 516 um, before Christ. And uh, let me see now. And that shift happened when um, the power shifted from from the Babylonian power to the Medes and Persians taking over, as it's recorded in in uh, Daniel. Um, and, uh, I mean, we don't have a psychological profile on Cyrus, exactly why he did it. Um, but it seems as though, I, I, if I recall correctly, he said, um, go back, rebuild your temple, and then pray for me. So I think he was trying to seek the favor of all the divergent gods of the peoples that had been conquered before him. Anyways, uh, so the Israelites came back. Um, and uh, as you can read about in the the Old Testament towards the end, uh, Nehemiah famously rebuilt the wall in a very short span of time with uh, the help of all the all the uh, returned exiles. And then, um, um, what's his name in English? Uh, Zedekiah. Is it Zedekiah? Sorry, that's Ezra. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah go together, fit as a as a unit. Um, they used to be united, and then we divide them for uh, ease of of. of um, ease of use. Um, and Ezra rebuilt the foundation of the temple, then there was a big uproar, and then uh, it, it took a while to finish it. Um, but uh, that all happened shortly after in, um, would that be the 5th century BC, 5th and 4th century BC. Um, so the, the Jewish people came back and rebuilt their civilization, rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem, so they had a place to flee to if a major army invaded, uh, and they rebuilt their center of worship. So a few really big things uh, to mention religiously um, or in a socio-religious context. Uh, One thing is that um, the Babylonian deportation and return 
uh, did something remarkable for the Jewish people. So all throughout the Old, the Old Testament, I mean, right from Moses up to, well, even before Moses, um, there's a verse in Joshua, I don't feel like looking it up right now, but where it mentions, where it's right around where Joshua says, uh, me, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're very familiar with that passage, many of us are. He says, um, you can go and worship the other gods as your fathers did on the other side of the Euphrates. And so it seems as though Abraham, Abraham's father, Terah, probably worshipped idols uh, and, you know, a di you know, divergent gods other than uh, Yahweh, other than the, the God of the Jews. And then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob worshipped, you know, the God uh, Yahweh, um, Elohim, known by different names in the Old Testament. And then the Jewish people went down to is to Egypt, and they got confused by Egyptian uh, religion and culture. And then Moses had to, you know, when he said, your God is has come to rescue you, he had to kind of explain who that was. They had kind of a vague, shadowy, shadowy idea of who, who Yahweh was. Um, and then in the desert, as they went out and they went to Mount Sinai, first stop was you know, receive the Ten Commandments, understand who God is. Um, and, and and they got a very full understanding. They got the law, they got the commandments, they got a big understanding of, of who God was. Um, but at, even while they were doing that, even while they were receiving that, Moses was up on the mountain, they already built a calf and started worshiping that. Um, and that really, be, that was really... A snare that they had. I mean, that's our perspective on it. Is that it was bad. Um, historians would just say, well, you know, they, there was worship of Yahweh in in Israel, and there was worship of other idols, uh, and these things were side by side. Mm -hmm. uh, and archaeological digs are finding that there was certainly the temple and worship of Yahweh, but there were also worship of all sorts of other idols and other things um, but when the, the the Jews came back from uh, Babylon they were really cured of this uh, they didn't really worship other gods it became very cemented in their minds in their psyche in the history of their people we are Jewish we worship Yahweh um, this is our law this is our belief system this is what we believe and as we'll see, it became a temptation to um, to view that through a Greek lens. And then some people did start to get tempted towards worshipping the Greek gods. Um, but there was a very strong uprising against that, as we'll see, um, towards worship of, of Yahweh. Um, and uh, my interpretation of that, uh, I'm not an expert on this period of time, uh, but my interpretation of that is that um, you know, when you take a when you take a people out of a land, um, they have an identity crisis. Uh, if you have you know Italians in Canada, or you have Jews in in um, you know Manhattan or or whatever, they're gonna have a bit of identity crisis. Who am I? I'm not home anymore. And often, what happens is they start to really center and buckle down on what are our, our cultures, what are our traditions, who is our family, um, and hold on to some things is really, really important and teach them to their children. And it seems as though this is what the, the Jewish people did in Babylon. And one thing that seems to have started to happen, and as I researched this, it seemed as though 
this whole area, the, the 500s and 400s for the Jewish people, um, I'm going to keep saying things like it seemed as though it, it was likely that because it it seems as though there's there's less known. It's a little bit of a dark time in history. Um, <clears throat> but there's strong traditions that that's when the synagogue tradition started. The Jewish people wanted to teach their children and teach uh, the population who are we? What is our religion? What, you know, we can't go to the temple anymore to worship. So, so let's, let's meet in homes or let's meet in smaller groups and read over the scriptures, read over the, um, you know, the Torah and the Tanakh, um, Torah being the first five books of the Bible, the most important part of the Old Testament for the Jews and the Tanakh being the collection of the five sections off the top of my head. I'm thinking that's the Torah and then the poetry and the prophets and Poetry, prophets, Torah. I forget the other two. I'm sorry. Anyways, you can look that up. The Torah and the Tanakh. Um, and often they would have, you know, one person or, or, or a few men read the scriptures and then interpret them and then sing together and then pray together. Uh, so these are the progenitors of churches that we have today. Uh, don't believe people that tell you that churches are completely a Greek concept. Uh, they're actually something that the Jews had, uh, and likely it began in Babylon. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is that um, liberal scholars, and if you want to know what liberalism is, you can have a look at my podcasts on liberalism. Uh, but basically, liberalism is studying Christianity or studying the Jewish religion from the outside in. So we wouldn't expect liberals to actually be, believe in miracles. We wouldn't expect liberals to uh, believe that God was overshadowing um you know, the, the process of, of the authoring of uh, the Old Testament. And we wouldn't expect liberals to um, to take at face value claims made in the Old Testament or anywhere in the Bible. They want, they want proof, so to speak, uh, and, and they have uh, a high standard of what, what constitutes as proof. And below that, maybe there's, well, if, if they can't prove something, then they're going to say there's no proof for this, which often for them would mean it didn't happen. Um, or else there's, there's just no proof for it. Um, so liberals would tend to say that the Old Testament was written in Babylon uh, and they'll, at 500 years before Christ. And so they'll, they'll hasten to say, yes, well, there were pre-existent sources. That these, the Jewish people had some idea who they were before Babylon. But it was really in Babylon with this identity crisis and, and various things going on. There's all these theories about um, things that were going on with, with political conflict and uh, tensions between the priestly class and the, um, the scholarly class, I think. Um, and, and, and so liberals will theorize about how different people wrote different books to, um, to kind of support their view. Um, sometimes you'll hear about the JEPD theory. Um, and this is from uh, somebody noticed, uh, this was back you know, in the 19th century. Um, I almost wonder if it was Schleiermacher, uh, but it might have been somebody else. One of the really early liberals noticed that Genesis 1 is a creation story, and then Genesis 2 says the same story. Uh, if you look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, Genesis 1, you know, God, in the beginning God created la la la. Genesis 2, in the beginning um, God created man, and, he goes, and, and the story goes through again. And uh, it seems as though there's two different creation accounts. And uh, the, the scholar that looked at this said, well, the first account uses Yahweh. Uh, in, in Hebrew, it would be J-E, 
uh, and um, Yahweh and Jehovah are the same name, by the way. It's just a different pronunciation. Uh, so the first one uses Yahweh or Jehovah. It's this kind of further off God that kind of it's a big picture. It, it's, you know, God is more further removed from humanity and from creation. And then the second one, um, J-E, the second one is Elohim. Um, and uh, or, or this, the second one, uh, the story is very different. You know, God gets down on his knees, so to speak, and creates man and then breathes into his nostrils and talks with him and walks with him and has very intimate communication with him. And, and all throughout the second chapter, God is referred to as Elohim. And then this author, the scholar, and again, I'm sorry, I forget his name, uh, went through the rest of the Pentateuch and, and said, well, certain sections use Elohim more, certain sections use uh, Jehovah more. And so these are the, the J and the E sections. So supposedly there were two different books, two different traditions that were um, merged together into one. And then other scholars then added the P and the E, P for priestly and E for J-E-P-D. No, uh, D for deutero-something. I don't think it's deuterocanonical, but somebody that I, I think that's kind of somebody at the end of it all that, that was kind of messing with things and changing things. Anyways, all this to say, liberals will say that the Bible was written was written basically in Babylon. Um, conservatives would say no, it was written before this. Maybe they they tweaked a few things, um, but uh, it was definitely written before. Um, I would uh, I'm a conservative, and I would definitely say it was written before. Um, but I'm prepared to say there was a significant amount of um, editing and collecting that happened in Babylon. All of this under the influence of the Holy Spirit. All of this, um, I mean, even, you know, Moses, at, at the end of the book of Exodus, it says that Moses died and, uh, you know, God took his body and buried it somewhere on uh, on the mountain. Well, obviously Moses didn't write that. Um, somebody after Moses added things and, and wrote and often throughout the Old Testament you'll see and this stands to this day um, you, you have these kind of after these notes by somebody else writing uh, referring to an earlier time and, and and those are just the beginnings of it if you get really into this you can you can see more signs of um, diver different sources coming together and also of later authors um, adding and saying, well, actually, this happened, and then, then this happened. Um, you can go back and listen to my podcast on inerrancy, if that bothers you. Um, but for me personally, I just look at that and say, look, books weren't written the same way that they are today. You don't have one person that's the expert. But even today, if you're writing a book of history, you don't sit down, you know, in a vacuum and write history. You research people that came before you. Um, and when a book is written, like a history book, um, as new things come along, A, um, maybe, you know, 50 years from now, there'll be an update or a revision of a book. A, because somebody's going to want to say, well, there's new situations, there's new new topics today. So, so we'll just mention a few things as we're talking about, you know, the slavery issue. Um, maybe we want to mention some other issue that that connects with today uh, and B maybe new information is found um, getting a little bit deep into this subject while we're 15 minutes in on the first point um, but it's important it's important to talk about the Bible uh, and uh, I have a friend that's that's just texting me a lot of stuff a lot of questions about the Bible so it's kind of on my mind 
Um, all that to say, the the formation of the Old Testament is likely more complex than you learned in Sunday school. Um, but that doesn't mean that God wasn't overshadowing it. Uh, the the verse that we go to all the time is uh, in First Peter three sixteen, I believe that. Um, Know, first of all, that no prophecy uh, is an interpretation of man, um, but the prophets uh, spoke as God uh, inspired them to do so. Um, they, and the word inspired means driven along as a ship is driven along before the wind. Um, and uh, the idea being that, yes, they, they use their human capacities, they use their what was at their disposal, uh, they use potentially, you know, um, what was going on in the culture, what was happening in their day, the need to have, to understand who they were as a people and the need to, you know, um, teach in the synagogues and say, this is what, who we are, this is uh, what we believe. They use that and yet God was uh, breathing through that and God was, um, God was inspiring that and, uh, and the, the law of the Lord is perfect. Um, even though it has human agents, uh, it is perfect. So I have podcasts on in there and see you can go back and listen to. Uh, but that all connects with this time. Uh, and also Ezra is often pointed to as the guy that um, kind of collected it all. Um, whether he did a lot of editing uh, in, uh, in, in this context, we talk about redactors. Uh, redacting, uh, but it's, it's the same thing as editing or or uh, collecting. And Ezra likely made a change uh, in the Hebrew language itself to make the Hebrew language more uh, user-friendly, uh, possibly using uh, knowledge he gained in uh, Babylon. Uh, and so it seems as though at this time the Hebrew langu language changed and became easier to write, and then the scrolls of the Old Testament were um, were copied and then it, they kind of got more formalized um, and you know they would be stored and collected yes in the temple but also in, in the synagogues as as the people went back to Israel they built synagogues all over and they all had their own copies of the law that they copied and recopied and recopied after, from this time on after Babylon um, the Jewish people kept writing books, history books, also, um, you know, somebody has a vision or uh, somebody has some wisdom that they want to share. Um, but the books written after Babylon weren't really considered in the same category as the scriptures. And there's a few books that were written right towards the end, um, specifically um, the Queen of the Bible, Esther, um, was written right at the end and so there was this question about does it does it get in or not? Uh, the Book of Esther also doesn't doesn't actually mention God's name, um, doesn't mention God by name, and uh, so there was some question about that. Uh, but finally, Esther made it in, but other books didn't. And I think uh, again, this is just my interpretation, but it seems to make sense that um, from this point on, in their synagogues, the Jewish people were meeting, they were praying, they were reading scriptures, and when new books came in, they already had their set. And so, yes, they might have, you know, an important book on the side that they would also use, they would also read. But it didn't quite go into scriptures. It didn't quite go into that category. And so this is where you start to get the, the beginnings of the Apocrypha. 
And of course, the Catholics use the Apocrypha. Uh, most uh, Protestants do not. Um, I just want to put in a little word for uh, using the Apocrypha um, as a historical source, specifically the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabee. Um, they cover, I mean, the silent year, we, when we talk about the silent years, I think this podcast will probably be called the silent years. Um, we call it that because we have all this information all the way from Abraham and before, all, but really clear information from Abraham all the way up to Babylon, and then we have, we have nothing except for Daniel. Daniel prophetically speaks about this time. Um, but it's just silent. And if, But if that's because we're not using the Apocrypha. The Jews were still writing during this time. They were still thinking. They were still, you know, things were happening in their religion. Um, and if you read the book of 1st uh, and 2nd Maccabees, it just fills it in. Uh, it's not, it, you're not going to turn into a Catholic if you read it, okay? You'll be okay. Um, I, when I read them, I thought, wow, there's a big difference between this and scriptures. This, this is just my personal, you know, opinion. Maybe because I've read scriptures since I was a kid, and and this is new and different. But um, I felt personally as though this is not scriptures. This is different. Um, be that as it may, it's a great historical source. And um, when you read the Book of Maccabees, what you're going to find out is there was a big conflict between the Jewish people. Now we'll start moving ahead. Now we'll start making some. <laughs> Some in we'll start moving forward here. Um, there was a big tension between the Greek culture and uh, the Jewish culture. So if you haven't learned, listened to the previous podcast, you need to pause it now and go back and listen to it because I'm not going to say things again. Um, Alexander the Great came through in uh, in the third century um, before Christ. Uh, so remember, we're counting down to Christ. So uh, they. The Israelites got their land in, in 500 uh, and, thir- and right around the, the turn of the 5th century. So the, the 400s, they got their land. They're rebuilding. They're building synagogues. They're teaching and preaching and understanding who they are. Um, which reminds me, um, let's talk briefly about the Samaritans. Um, <laughs> I just said I was going to start making more progress. But uh, the other thing that Ezra did... Um, is uh, he did an ethnic cleansing. I don't know if you know that or if you're, if you're comfortable with that term in regards to what Ezra did. Um, but many of the, um, many of the, the Jews in uh, Babylon had intermarried with other uh, peoples, other religions. Um, this is what the Israelites had always been told not to do from the very beginning. Um, and there's a note that even uh, in the book of Ezra, there's a note that e- many of the children didn't even know how to speak Hebrew anymore. Um, and there was a very real danger of the Jewish people, which at this time the people and the religion were together, um, of them just becoming you know, Persian or, or just to cease to become a, a separate entity in itself. And so what Ezra did is he called the people together and he demanded that everybody divorce his non-Hebrew wife and send away his non-Hebrew children. And the people actually did this. Um, And uh, I mean, every time I read that, I just go like, God, you hate divorce. Like, is this really what you wanted to happen? Um, So maybe I should just clarify, when we talk about ethnic cleansing today, we often think about killing people that are of the wrong ethnicity or religion. Um, nobody was killed in this in this 
situation. Um, but they were sent away. Uh, and you, you have to wonder what happened to these women and children. Uh, what happened to all these people? Um, how were they provided for? Because uh, being sent away at this time for a woman or a child was basically a death sentence by starvation or being forced into prostitution or slavery. Um, we don't know exactly. The book of Ezra doesn't make it clear. But there's a strong tradition that they went north and joined the, the people um, of Samaria. Now, um, I should have mentioned before that, uh, well, you, but it's part of the Old Testament. You should know this if, if you've read the Old Testament, that the northern kingdoms, uh, Israel divided in two, Israel on the north and Jerusalem uh, and Judea on the south. And the north was conquered by Assyria in a series of invasions and all deported up to Assyria. Um, or not, not to the city of Assyria, but um, the Assyrian people like to mix people around, put some people here, put other people there, so that everybody would be confused what their ethnicity was, but they're all Assyrian. Uh, it didn't really work because Assyria was such an odious empire that ruled by brutality um, that nobody really wanted to be identified as Assyrian, and they ended up, you know, as soon as Assyria uh, got weak, um, the everybody just surrounded them and and totally destroyed them ripped the city down and it was never never rebuilt the city of Nineveh uh, as foretold there's a book um, anyways one of the minor prophets talks about the end of, of Nineveh and Assyria um, but but in the north there was just this this mix this milieu of people uh, some of them had been deported some of them were Israelites that had you know that had stayed behind, that had missed, that had uh, that skipped out of being deported, but a lot of them were not. Um, and uh, these people, this was during the Babylonian captivity, actually. The Babylonians did the same thing. All that I said was true, but what I'm about to say is during the Babylonian captivity. Um, the Babylonians took a bunch of people out, took the Israelites out, took a bunch of them to Babylon, and then put a bunch of other people there from other places. Um, and these other people um, started getting attacked by lions, and uh, and they sent a message back to, to the Babylonian authorities to say, thanks for the land, thanks for putting us here, we appreciate it, but the lions keep attacking us, we don't know how to worship the gods of this land, so please give a, send us somebody to teach us how to worship appropriately. And so the Babylonian leaders sent uh, some priests, some Jewish priests, to teach them how to worship Yahweh. And so up in the north, um, around the, um, the old capital of the northern kingdom, which was Samaria, uh, you had all these people. Some of them had been... Uh, the majority of the Israelites were gone. Uh, through the, the Assyrian captivity, they were taken away. Uh, and they were just interspersed with the other peoples. Uh, they didn't really worship Yahweh to begin with. Um, you can read about that in the Old Testament. And so they just kind of dispersed and and the religion and the genetic makeup of, of the ten northern tribes just was gone, which is why we talk about the ten lost tribes. But some of those people stayed. And then some of... Um, some of the people from Jerusalem might have made it back up, but certainly a few priests did. And then there were some other people mixed into this group. And all this group became the Samaritan people um, who had uh, the idea of worshiping God that these priests taught them, um, but who also had some other ideas mixed in. 
And uh, so the, what I just told you is one potential version of the origins of the Samaritan people. Um, the I, I hasten to add that the actual origins of, of the Samaritan people, it, we just don't really know. It was just during a dark, a dark time. Um, nobody was really caring about these things to write history about them. Um, but it seems likely that this is how the Samaritan people started. And so you can see around Jesus' time um, where there would be strong tension between these two people groups. Likely, this is you know where the children and women went uh, when they were kicked out of Jerusalem for not being Jewish enough. Um, and yet, many of them then in Samaria, in Samaria did worship Yahweh, just not correctly, not the right way. Um, and uh, the Samaritan people, I should mention as well, kept most of the, they kept the Torah, the five, first five books of the Old Testament, um, but they changed a few things, and uh, they added, added an 11th commandment um, at the end of, you know, the Ten Commandments, that you shall only worship God here on Mount Gerizim, which is why uh, when Jesus was talking with a Samaritan woman, pretty quickly the conversation went there because the Jewish people believed they, sh they should only worship God in Jerusalem, which is very important, very central in the Old Testament. Um, but the Samaritan people believe they should only worship God in um, on Mount Gerizim. And the Samaritan people are still around. They're the oldest sect in the Bible, in the world, uh, according to some random encyclopedia article that I read one time. Um, there's still Samaritans that are genetically Samaritan and that are religiously Samaritan, uh, and they date from this time. All right. Whew. That was fun. Now let's try and uh, get to the rest of this uh, in the about 15 or 20 minutes that, that remains. So Alexander the, the Great comes through in the 300s. Um, well, 310 to 323 when he died. Um, and uh, as I mentioned before, the high, the high priest, um, Israel during this time was governed by the high priest under the Persian Empire. Uh, so they had some measure of aut autonomy, uh, but they were still paying taxes to um, the Persians, the Medes and the Persians and then the Persians. Um, and the high priest, uh, he had read Daniel, he knew what was going on. Um, and uh, when Alexander the Great came through, he just marched his, went, went out, basically gave him the key, keys to the city, said, we're not going to fight. We know that you're from God. You're the next emperor. And actually many people did this um, for various reasons, they just saw that um, Alexander the Great was going to be the next ruling empire after he killed, after he defeated Persia. It was like, well, there's nothing else really going to stop you. Um, and so uh, many of Alexander's uh, victories were bloodless. Um, and so they just started redirecting their taxes over to Greece. Um, now, Alexander the Great, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, he didn't set up an enduring empire. His empire was split into four categories, uh, and that's going to become relevant in a second. Um, but first, I want to mention all the things I said before about Greek culture um, and how Alexander the Great was a great missionary of Greek culture. Um, these things now came in a big way into uh, Jerusalem and into Israel. So when we're talking about Greek culture, um, there's kind of, it's kind of this big nebulous thing, but there's at least three bullet points that we could talk about. For one, obviously we have the Greek gods and the myths of, um, 
of the Greek gods that are still with us today. If you talk about Jupiter and Venus and and Neptune, um, kind of childish. Um, well, for me, cartoon images come in mind because I watch cartoons about um, these characters came into cartoons now and then. Um, but uh, um, many of you would know that Zeus, that uh, Jupiter was the the king. Uh, god and that Neptune was the god of water and Venus was the god of love. Um, many of us know these uh, gods through their Roman names because uh, when Rome conquered, as we'll talk about in a second, um, became oh no, we talked about that yesterday. So when when the Gre when the Greek culture got subsumed into the Roman culture, they had very similar gods and so they just called them by the the Roman names. Uh, and so uh, Jupiter became Zeus, and um, Venus became, I believe, Aphrodite. Uh, could be wrong on that. And Neptune, I'm not sure. And Mars, god of war. <sighs> Might have just stayed Mars, I'm not sure. Some, I guess some of them I know more from the Greek and some from the, the Roman. Um, so certainly these things were, were being pushed into, uh, into uh, Jewish culture. Um, something that was significant all the way up to uh, Christian times and beyond was that uh, education for Greeks was to memorize the Iliad and the Odyssey. These were long extended poems um, uh, about the Greek gods and the Greek, um, you know, the great acts and the mighty deeds of various um, uh, various Greek people. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting tired now. Uh, but uh, And so education was basically to memorize these things. And then as you're talking, um, the, these metaphors and these ways of thinking from, from these, uh, well, for one thing, it teaches you how to read and write. That's the basic, that's the most important function. But also the ideas from the myths uh, then become part of your, your worldview and become part of your culture. Similarly to how um, during the days of the Wild West, um, many people had um, just a Bible in their library. That's all they had. And so all that they used to, to teach their children to read was to get them to read the Bible. And uh, in, in memorizing and re in reading the Bible, they learned to read and write, but they also learned the worldview of the Bible. So this same sort of thing was happening with the Greek uh, gods and myths. Also, um, the Greek philosophy and so these two are kind of in tension within, within uh, Greco-Roman society um, because philosophy is almost secular, it's scientific, whereas the myth myths are and, and the gods are you know, very religious. Um, and they were able to merge these two by uh, philosophy, reading Greek myths as, um, as myths, as the, it didn't really happen, it's just nice stories that teach us something. Um, about philosophy. So you had a wide divergence of people. Um, philosophy kind of progressively won more and more. Um, but during this time, people were very much believing in the Greek gods, but were also using some Aristotle and some Plato in there as well. Um, but certainly there was just a whole big way of thinking. Um, and, you know, there's, it's not just one way of thinking, it's, it's a mentality uh, with different uh, different perspectives within it. And then uh, the most noticeable one was sports. 
Um, so we're, as I record this, it's in the middle of the Olympics, and it's fascinating to see that um, the same thing is going on that started um, started before Alexander the Great. Um, but uh, Alexander the Great was the one that really spread it all across the known world. And um, the idea of having Olympic sports, sports you know, close to Mount Olympus where the gods were seen to dwell, um, was basically to unite peoples. Um, yes, uh, uh, going up and down the Italian peninsula, um, everybody's fighting each other, city-states are all independent, but let's all get together once every four years and just have good, good, good-natured games together. Um, so that was partially, you know, a, a, an impetus for unity, but also along with the Greek philosophy, it was um, pushing to the forefront the importance of the human body, the human capacity, the human ability to overcome obstacles. And so it's kind of tied in with this humanistic emphasis and the emphasis on self and the emphasis on, on the body and the emphasis on humanism. Um, we still talk today about humanism. And uh, I guess I should add maybe a fourth point to this is art. And Greek art was incre increasingly focused on the human body. And so even today you'll see Greek art um, and uh, well, we see a lot of Renaissance art because Renaissance art was imitating ancient Greek art. Um, a lot of nudity because the body is beautiful. The body is pure. There's no religious nonsense that tells us we need to wear clothes. Um, let's just make a picture. Let's just make a sculpture of a naked person, or or um, mostly naked. Um, and so, the Jewish people had an issue with this. For one thing, nudity was just a, a flashpoint because in scriptures, there's many many places. Even um, the Jews were forbidden to make an altar too high because um, the priest might walk up and and you'd see his you'd see un, into his garments. Um, and uh, there's many places, and I mean, God, God is the one that gave us clothes in the Garden of Eden. Um, and there's a cursing on somebody that uh, <clears throat> gets his neighbor drunk just to look on his nakedness. So the Jews, for the Jews, they, they couldn't do this nonsense with nudity. As well, the, um, the Olympic Games, well, for one thing, they were all infused with worship of the gods and, you know, the wreaths all symbolized something with the gods, and the torch was something with the gods. Uh, and so there was all this idolatry mixed in, but also all the athletes competed naked, uh, nude, um, or nearly nude. And so, again, that was something that the Jewish people, um, the conservative Jewish people had a big issue with. And then the, this philosophy coming in, well, memorizing all this stuff about these Greek gods, this is competing now with study of the Torah, for one thing, competing just in time. You can't study, you can't memorize the Torah and memorize the, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And very different competing worldviews. And so Simon the Just um, lived between 300 before Christ and 265. And he was the first to really start, um, there were probably some before him, but he was, he was a really uh, strong writer and proponent of conservative Judaism. And his... Some of his writings and his thoughts then became um, repeated and cherished by the Jewish people and by the conservative Jewish people. And um, he kind of started a, a movement. And other conservatives after him 
kind of added more thoughts to his and more interpretations of the Torah to his. And this all snowballed into what during the time of Jesus was known as uh, the tradition of the elders. So Simon the Just was the first of the elders, but then there were a whole tradition of others that um, added their two cents in this. Uh, and so this was really... Um, Greek influence was coming in. All these things that we're so familiar with in our culture were coming in. Um, and the Jewish people were saying, whoa, back off. Uh, we need to have a conservative uh, um, Judaism, and we can't go and be swayed by all this stuff. And uh, just for interest's sake, the Mishnah was the final form then of this uh, tradition of the elders. Uh, this was an oral tradition that was passed on for, um, looks like around 400 years. Uh, finally written down in book form around 200 after Christ uh, by Judah the Prince. Um, and uh, now you can actually read the Mishnah if you would like. A uh, very fascinating book. It's on my to-do list to read that someday. Um, and uh, yeah. And so one of my students asked me... Um, was the was Greek culture enforced? Was it pushed on people in some way? Um, especially during this time, uh, it wasn't enforced as much as it was caught, as much as it was just a culture that pushes, that moves. Um, I asked my student to students to tell me what what does rock and roll mean to you, and they came up with things like being a rebel or being cool or being strong or being independent or, you know, having sexual liberty. Um, and then just to think about how the idea of rock, rock and roll, has really gone global. Uh, something that started basically in the United States, although, you know, other places as well, with the British invasion. But um, this concept of rock is really a global phenomenon. And uh, then I asked, well, what can you tell me some places in on earth that some countries are resisting the idea of rock? And right away somebody mentioned North Korea. Uh, you know, that's a really prime example. There's a country that says, no, we don't want rock and roll here. We don't want anything that rock and roll stands for. We don't want you to think independent thoughts. Um, we don't want you to have, well, um, we don't want you to become American. We don't want you to become American in how you think and how you dress and how you... Uh, in all these ways. Another really good example would be uh, the, the whole conservative Muslim world that says we don't want you um, becoming influenced by America, we don't want you to have sexual freedom uh, in, in that sort of a way, um, etc. So we can see how this sort of thing happens today. And this is very much how Greek culture was pushing at that time, um, necessitating there was a need to push back and Simon the Just and, and the tra tradition of the elders was pushing back against that. All right, I see that we're moving up on 43 minutes. Um, the nice thing about podcasts is when you go over your time, um, you can just make another podcast. And everybody's happy, I'm happy, and you have more information uh, than maybe you bargained on. But it's a really fascinating time, uh, and I think it, it, um, it merits two podcasts because... Um, Rather than rushing over Herod the Great and Antiochus and the Maccabees, um, let's do a second podcast on that. And then uh, as well, I'm going to go more into uh, the history of the scribes and the Pharisees, the Essenes, 
and other lovely people that really um, give us a lot of richness and um, a lot of context for understanding the New Testament. So um, I think I'll leave it there for tonight, and I will pick this up when I have time um, tomorrow or later. So this is Josiah Meyer for the for the No Longer Be Children podcast, and uh, I wish you well. Good night.